Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you This is the final word coming to you live from the garden in London. The birds are singing. The sky is thinking that it might be possible to consider the prospect of being blue at some stage in the future. And we're taking it just a little bit easier because we've had a manic first not quite week at the World Cup doing the daily podcasts. If you've been listening to those, uh, thank you for your tolerance. <laughs> They've been flat chat because we've been sort of doing them in, in half panic going, right, we've got to get this done in 15 minutes. Okay, how fast can we talk? And now we can ah, take a break because it's the weekly. I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is with me looking relaxed. Sounds like you're about to host love song dedications, Jeff, <laughs> with that opening. Look, it's, it's early in the morning. Uh, I'm off to somewhere soon and I have to get a coach there. So we've decided to wake up early and, and do the podcast as opposed to doing it when we, when we were out on our feet last night, exhausted at midnight. We're like, right, time to record. Like, we can barely keep our eyes open. So it, it's cool. There's no, no complaints, of course. We're, we're, on, we're on a good ride here at the moment and we're enjoying what we're doing. But uh, yeah, it. it's, it's, it's meant to be a marathon, but I think at the moment we're still in sprint mode. So we'll find our groove over time. If you uh, need a coach, I hear that Brendan Bolton's free. <laughs> uh- um, sorry, I, sorry I, to our English listeners. Sorry to our anyone that's, that's not a, no, from I'm, Melbourne I'm, I'm listeners. I'm going to have to apologise to our listener Yvette Hollings because I know she was very upset about that. She's written an impassioned piece about the culture of sacking coaches in various football forms mm. on the Footy Almanac. So, hello, Yvette. She's in the Nerd Pledge game later too. But Excellent. first, we have to discuss James Neesham, New Zealand all rounder. Uh, we got him on the show for. I suppose more briefly than we would like because he's such an interesting fella and he's a great conversationalist, just sits down and straight into a very entertaining chat. So we've we enjoyed our time with him yesterday and we're going to let you enjoy that time with him today. Yeah, the reason I thought he'd be a good person to speak to was that three summers ago over here when he was playing in the T20 Blast for Derbyshire, having lost his spot in the New Zealand side, I think from memory at the time he was out of the team, uh, he sat down with our colleagues, uh, Vadishan Hantaraja and Will McPherson on what was then known as the Freelance Cricket Club podcast. And he was such an entertaining character. And of course, we know him off social media. Anyone who is, is in the cricket Twitter rati, as it were, has seen Jimmy's work at one stage or another. Doesn't seem to give a shit what anyone thinks, which is unusual for a <laughs> professional sportsman. So um, we thought that now that he's back in business as the number one white ball New Zealand all-rounder, which is no mean feat given how far back in the pecking order he was just a couple of years ago, mm. that it was the right time to grab him. In the end, it was a roughly a 20-minute you know, chat about a few issues that, that we actually dealt with on the Glenn Maxwell interview last week. There's a whole bunch of cricket stuff we may have talked to him about it and we might revisit at a later date. I'd um, love to talk to him again at yeah. some point down the line and if you enjoy it, let us know and we can see if we can revisit that at some later date. I'm sure we can collar him at some point during the World Cup even. So mostly we're talking about the, the struggles he went through when he was considering quitting cricket in 2016 
uh, when he was out of the side, when he'd fallen out of love with the game and the issues with being a perfectionist as he explains how much he kind of hated himself at the time and how he's found a way to deal with that and bounce out of that and become a much better, not just cricketer, but version of himself in the process and yeah, I guess there's, a, there's lessons in it for, for a lot of us, I think. Yeah, um, it, was a, it was a really interesting perspective that he brings. We'll come to that very shortly, and I guess we're not really going to do much in the way of World Cup chat because that's all on the daily. We could spaff for 20 minutes about how much we love Pakistan. For their, I mean, you, you hate succumbing to the cliche, but being so confounding because we thought they were cooked and suddenly they're not cooked and all the rest of it. But you can catch up with that on the dailies. Yeah, that, that's right. So the, the daily podcast is designed, if you haven't listened to it, for us to give a 20 to... 15 to 20 minute recap on what's happened on the field and what's happening the next day and yeah usually that's happening in, in top gear as we try and file <laughs> rapidly to meet the deadlines we've got it reproduced on, on a Melbourne radio station RSN 927 so we have a very strict deadline and that probably uh, adds to the urgency of that conversation <laughs> although we are trying to step it back a gear or two so that we, we you can understand what we're talking about yeah, <laughs> it's, not, it's not just a sort of high pitched whine that various whales are like I'm sorry what were you talking to me yeah <laughs> Yeah, but no, it's been a good discipline. Uh, having a deadline on you and I can often be a good thing. So so we're not going to deal too much in the World Cup, although there are the politics around the World Cup. I was thrilled with Bangladesh's victory the other day, not least because, once again, it sends a signal to countries who have disrespected them over the journey, namely Australia, uh, Cricket Australia, to, mm-hmm. uh, to pay greater attention and, and give greater opportunity for Bangladesh to play international cricket against Australia in Australia. It'll be 20 years in 2023. And I know I, I, know I bang on about this. I'm mindful that I spend a lot of time talking about this on Twitter and on and on the podcast, but I'm not going to miss an opportunity when they've just knocked off South Africa with their highest one-day score in a, in a classic World Cup tussle yeah. at the Oval. Like it, just, it serves to remind people that, and remind the broader cricketing world that uh, Cricket Australia... We did an interview with their first World Cup captain from 1999 on, on another podcast I'm doing about the 99 World Cup, and he talked about just how supportive Australian cricketers and Cricket Australia were before they became a test-playing nation. Mm. And the contrast is so stark to now. So pull your finger out, CA, uh, host Bangladesh at some point in some form of the game, and let's help develop a, a cricketing nation with such extraordinary support who've done amazing things considering they weren't even playing test cricket 20 years ago and all they're asking adam all they're asking is for a little respect just i nearly opened the podcast on the daily the other day with that Uh, so you see how much we're intertwined on this at the moment there's other there's a bit more effectively the same person at this point it it, it feels that way doesn't it there's another bit of politics as well i should add the the cricket australia board i'm not going to go into depth about this because uh, peter lawler and john pyrrick dan bredig and a few others have written about it overnight and they can do a better job than i can on the hoof given that i'm reading this stuff on my phone but Earl Eddings, the, the chair of Cricket Australia, has uh, moved from being a, a director from Cricket Victoria to an independent director. By extending his term, he can remain on his chair. That's the guts of it. Mm. And there is a, a new director being announced today, separate to that, Richard Freudenstein. So um, I guess in, in keeping with CA's objective to, to broaden out the type of director they've got, he's the former chief executive of Foxtel. <laughs> and before that, he was the um, CEO of News Digital Media, um, the Australian newspaper, and the chief operating officer at B Sky B. So, yeah, so good that, that CA is sort of broadening out the type of people they have on, on that board. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really encouraging sign. Just, just merging the, the, the Murdoch media empire. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Yeah, it's become good. one and the same. Oh, well, you know, uh, needs but, must. But look, the important thing to remember is that Freudenstein's actually the doctor. Freudenstein's monster is a totally separate concept. <laughs> so. Oh, look, at the, the uh, you know what I'm interested in, and look, not seriously interested in, but just kind of, uh, it's probably, again, the, 
the former political beast in me, not former political beast, I'm still a political beast, but the former political hack in me. Political beast in the sheets. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I'm not sure what you are in the streets. <laughs> no. <laughs> not, well, not the latter anymore. Uh, the uh, I wonder what, because obviously um, there is a process to become a director of Cricket Australia and there's an internal subcommittee process and so forth. I do wonder what would happen if, if someone mounted a, a serious bid to become a board director of CA, um, what it would require and, and if someone was inspired to do something like that to mm. make it so that there was a bit of competitive tension. Or some kind of actual grassroots representation, you know, someone yeah. who actually comes from the the community of people who make cricket happen uh, beneath the top level administration. Yeah, and there is and there is that. There are people who've had an, a, a, you know, a deep and long involvement in, in community cricket who do also serve on the board having had uh, vast experience in the corporate world and and the the model uh, that was in put in place after 2012 when they yeah. uh, when they when they uh, changed the way that they appointed board directors um, has facilitated some of that but yeah I, I did find it interesting and instructive that a senior member of the of the Murdoch Empire is uh, going on to the CA board and we'll just leave it at that we will uh, we will leave it at that for this little bit of the pod let's go and hear from James Nation at the Oval in London This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We're uh, sitting on a lovely late late afternoon, early summer evening in England. We're at the Oval. We're sitting in the seats outside and uh, we've got alongside us, thanks to Kookaburra Cricket, James Neesham, New Zealand all-rounder. Lovely to have you along. G'day, guys. Lovely evening. It's a bit chilly. It, it's just a bit, but it's, you know, that sort of in between. You're still wearing shorts, though. Are you one of these, like, wear shorts all winter types? Uh, I've just been training, so I'm a bit warm, but you're right, I am. If you see me... Um, swap the jandals for a pair of sneakers you know it's it's probably the middle of winter yeah <laughs> that seems to be a particularly New Zealand thing that it's like even if it's two degrees outside and you live on the South Island you're like no I'm not wearing closed toe shoes yeah oh, it's, it's almost like a challenge you go to walk out of the house and your missus goes shouldn't you be wearing shoes <laughs> no no I'm wearing jandals for another week now that you said that if you wear closed toe shoes, the terrorists have won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or at least global warming's lost. <laughs> we um, we had a brief chat to James Franklin a few days ago, and, and our opening question to him was, "How does it feel to not be the funniest New Zealand all rounder?" Because um, we think you've got him covered. Did, did Frank, did Frankie think he was funny? No, I, I don't know if well, he I, thought he was. We just told him he wasn't. Yeah, I, I think that. Well, he, he fancies himself as a, as, a, as a funny man. I think I don't think he'd mind me saying that. But we we put to him that you were funnier than him, and he seemed to accept the premise as well. I don't think any funny man claims to be funny, do they? I, I don't think I'm that funny. I just don't really care. You have got a, reputa- <laughs> <laughs> you have got a reputation, don't you? I mean, you've been a cricketer who I think anyone who has been involved in social media or Twitter or whatever it is over the last five or six years, you've been prominent and you've developed that, that profile pretty nicely. Oh, I enjoy having fun, I think. <laughs> Um, social media is. Yeah, I, I think everyone enjoys. It's like fun, a Tinder profile. There's yeah, people yeah. who put on love to laugh. I and enjoy. Like, oh, you love to laugh. On you're the, the only one. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, oh, look. I think um, social media is one of those things. I think it, it, there's so much negativity and so much toxicity in it that if you take it seriously, you're in for a rough time. Mm. I think if you if you have a laugh and you don't care and you can open it up and and see sort of 25 people absolutely tearing shreds off you and, and just make a laugh out of it. And I think that's probably the only way to go about it. There was a time there when you were probably better known for your social media presence than your day job. Did, did you feel that for a while there, a couple of years back when, I know you were over here playing county cricket and so forth, but you're out of the national side and, and perhaps, yeah, maybe you were better known for being the funny bloke on Twitter? 
Yeah, I think it becomes a lot easier to, to be a bit of an idiot on social media when you are so separated from the team because mm. you, you almost don't think about things you shouldn't be saying or, <laughs> or things you shouldn't <laughs> be talking about. And I did get the odd reminder where the, the Black Cats manager would, would give me a call and tell me to delete something or something like that, and I'd think, oh, that's right, I am. I'm an ex-black cat, <laughs> and hopefully a future one as well. But um, oh, look, I think when when you're in the public eye and when you're, um, I suppose, in a team unit with lots of other people, you you do have to think more about um, how it comes off as a collective and how it reflects on the group, which obviously um, tempers a few things that you might think are, are pretty humorous at the time. But um, you just have to you have a little bit more of a, a deeper think about it. We're you? taking we're taking a break here, so you can put on your. Would you get your gilet? Your gilet. It's it's a. You gilet actually had noir. it put on for you. That's, by, what, it's, that's what it's called, isn't it? A gilet. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is. Willie Nichols, the New Zealand team media it's manager, has come over and literally put it over your shoulders. Gilet. It's Thanks, French Willie. for vest. Well, because the blokes running around in France protesting everything with the fluoro yellow vests on. They're, they're the gilet jaune. It's also yeah. a beautiful Kiwi thing because mm. it's clearly cold. Yep. Yet I'm still fully exposed yeah. from the sort of shoulders outwards, <laughs> so I still feel like a man. Normally, so I take these from photos side down and from bicep down. Yeah. Everything's open. I've basically got only my <laughs> vital organs looked after, and then everything it's, else can go through itself. It's pretty much armor. It's basically a mm. modern version of armor. You gird your loins quite literally, you know, cover the important areas that might yeah. get you stabbed. I'm about to start jousting. Yeah. <laughs> um. Normally when I take the photo for this podcast, it's when you're not watching, but now you've got the gelé on, I'm going to get you to pose for one in the middle of the middle of the interview. Well, yep. We may as well take advantage of the situation as rare as it is. Well, well I'm going to ask a question. With Beautiful, that gorgeous. online stuff, have you ever thought about following the Sachin model and just having the most boring account of all time where all you do is tweet happy birthday to various cricketers from around the world? <laughs> it, really? Is That's that, that a professional happy birthday Am I going to get sale? a lot of yeah. hate speech if I say I don't follow Sachin on Twitter? Oh, probably. I we'll think. probably get a lot. Nice so the, the one you've got to um, look for is Magic Johnson, yeah. the NBA executive. He has Right. easily the most boring Twitter account of all time <laughs> not to mention that he's also wasted the world's best porn star name on a basketball <laughs> <laughs> I'd never thought of it that way Magic Johnson Magic Johnson what? <laughs> It's basketball. Might all be related. But, yeah, it sounds, well. like it sounds like a kid's book that's gone horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about, there was a, we listened to a podcast you did with our colleagues, uh, Will McPherson and Petitioner Hunter Raja. There was a lot of golf chat on there. Golf, to me, is the most boring sport of all time. And I like cricket, which is, you know, it's up there in terms of long things there where nothing much happens. Why is every cricketer so bloody obsessed with golf? Yeah, I, I've given it up golf I, I just I'm so relieved to hear that I spent about a thousand pounds on a new set of golf clubs expecting to become really good <laughs> and I got worse and I got so frustrated that I uh, threw them away <laughs> and I now refuse to play so it's been great I, I, I got so much spare time my family knows who I am again the dog gets fed it's fantastic. I don't have six hours out of my day every day. I'm just imagining a scene like, you know, where the guy throws the engagement ring off the pier after the, the affair's broken up, just hurling golf clubs into the sea one by one. Uh, yeah. I, I'm trying to get rid of them, but the problem is they're left-handed and an inch long. So it's very rare. I might have to call Jacob Orr up. Frankie, is he left-handed, actually? Uh, I yeah, can't sure. Remember. He might be looking for a new yeah. set. He's not playing cricket anymore. He's so a coach now. And he's coaching up at Durham, I think. Maybe I can get a T20 gig by giving him some golf clubs. Hmm. Or is that tampering? No. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I see your way through. <laughs> you are back in the national squad, though. I mean, fair while out of the national team. You come back in, slap a shitload of runs last year, including nearly the fastest 50 of all time or whatever it was. And, and here you are in the World Cup. Did you think 12 months ago, or maybe 18 months ago, that, that you'd actually play in this tournament? No, to be honest. I think... It's referred to as the fastest 48 of all time, by the way. <laughs> um, 
No, I, there's no, a whole cricket info category for that. Yeah, they will be. I, I've tried to have it brought down, <laughs> but no, they won't reply to my emails. I think it's the biggest lie told in professional sport when you if someone gets interviewed who is out of a team for two years and says, I always believed that I would make it back. I always believed that I was good enough to succeed. I, I think it's absolute bollocks. I think, of course, there were moments, extended periods of time, where I didn't believe I was ever going to play for New Zealand again. And I think you'd be a madman to not have those periods. And I think, for me, it was a case of recognising that I was essentially by myself it was up to me to make my career succeed it wasn't anyone else's responsibility it wasn't a betting coach a bowling coach a, a mentor anyone like that it, w- it was about me knuckling down and, and putting the work in and and realizing that it's not going to be a, a quick fix it's, it's going to take time and I think my move to Wellington at the start of last season was really a, a case of me really putting my balls on the line and, and going somewhere new and wanting to prove from from ball one that I was good enough and obviously it worked out you don't do many interviews with people who it didn't work out for. It's it's sort of a self-selecting group. And look, I'm just ecstatic to be back here. And, and as you mentioned before, on, on one of the most beautiful grounds in the world, preparing for a World Cup game. Mm. So you had about a year and a half out of that national team and, and some pretty dark days in there. You said that you almost decided to walk away from the game. Tell us a bit about that time and, and, and how much you didn't really want cricket at that point. Well, I think we obviously had the Champions Trophy over here in 2017 and, and that was an extremely poor showing for us and as a team and for me individually and I sort of went through that winter preparing for the next summer expecting to be the the number one white ball rounder in the country and come that September uh, I was obviously dropped from the Black Caps and then not even selected in the NZA team to tour India so basically in my mind I'd gone from the number one all-rounder in the country to not one of the best 27 players in the country which was was pretty galling and I was very, very angry about that. I was very bitter about that. Um, I went out in a domestic season with a chip on my shoulder wanting to score 100 ball double hundreds every innings and, and basically show people how wrong they'd been. And, and I think it sort of started a bit of a downward spiral for me where my expectations were so far beyond reasonable that um, it wasn't possible for me to have a good day playing cricket. And I think when you get into that situation, the only way is downwards, really. If, if I scored 80, I wanted 100. If I scored 140, I wanted 200. Yeah. And basically, there was no point where I was happy with, with how I was training or how I was playing. And basically got to the point where, as I've mentioned in an interview before, I, I sort of opened the curtains hoping that it was raining because that was a day where I couldn't fail. And I think when you get into that kind of scenario, it's very, very difficult to succeed and, and more importantly, very difficult to enjoy things. And taking a break from the game was was comfortably the the best decision I've ever made I think I've mentioned that I did want to retire but I was convinced not to um, I was convinced to take a fortnight off and or two or three weeks off and and sort of gradually return to the game and and um, yeah obviously came back and had a, a wee bit of success but the uh, the time off that winter and um, was certainly the catalyst for the comeback from there were there any other techniques you deployed to arrest that spiral because it feels like what you're saying there that it was a fairly protracted period of time where you felt like shit with your cricket I mean it, it's not a it doesn't sound like an easy thing to just take two weeks off and be good as gold again no it wasn't I think yeah right it was an extended period of time it was it was sort of four months or so of sort of getting worse and worse and I, to be honest when I came back to the cricket after three weeks off I didn't want to I I sort of was dragged kicking and screaming back to Dunedin basically because I'd have to either retire or or go back right and um I was still centrally contracted at that time and there was a long time left on that contract and basically retiring meant 
giving all that up so to be honest it was a financial decision to go back to the game mm. but I basically went back with zero expectations and just wanted to, to go out and, and have fun and enjoy the other lads in the team and um, I didn't really expect to, to do any good because at that time I didn't believe I was good enough to, to succeed in domestic cricket so I just wanted to go back and, and enjoy the I suppose the rest of the season and I had a little bit of success um, scored a few runs at the end of that season but then really it was the winter where I sort of got things back on track and then as I mentioned before moved to Wellington and, and sort of got things on the up again. You said that during that time you went to see a psychologist it was something that stood out to me because I also did the same thing for the first time in the last year or so. Um, how did that benefit you or how did that shift your mindset a little bit? Well a 180 to be honest I think I've always been a, a bit of a perfectionist and for me it was really about approaching cricket with a totally different mindset and, and sort of thinking about what could go right rather than what could go wrong and um, I used to always be a guy who would not leave a net session until I hit 10 cover drives perfectly and if I hit 9 in a row then I'd bash the stumps over and start again and I re- sort of realised how harmful that was to my psyche mainly as a person rather than mm. as a cricketer and I think for me now I really try and care as little as possible about the, the external results of training I try and go out and throw the ball around and, and have a bowl and have a hit and, and trying to think as little about the actual outcomes and more about the process. I know it's a cliche but um, I think for guys who are I suppose really harsh on themselves as a natural mode, I think it's really important. Mm. I've noticed this trend in sports where you know people are talking about mental health a bit more and there's a lot of praise for it oh it's very brave for so and so to come out and talk about whatever but there's still a kind of pressure to have the happy ending story as in I had a really dark time and then I turned it around and if you're someone who's dealing with those issues longer term you, there often is no happy ending it, it's a matter of just learning to manage it and trying to manage it as, as best you can when you're on that pod back in 2016 you were quite upbeat saying that you'd, you'd put the disappointment of not getting in the 2015 World Cup behind you and you were on the up and up and then it sounds like you had a real dip as well after that um, so I'm, I'm sort of wondering where do you think was that a time when you were maybe telling yourself that you were okay when that wasn't really the case or I was lying yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's very easy to come across as confident and come across as um, all together. And I think I used to see it as as sort of essential to being an elite athlete because if if you show those weaknesses to other people, then they know that you're human and they'll they'll right. exploit them and, and those sorts of things. And and I think the way I've turned it around is really, I suppose, embracing those weaknesses I suppose as strengths and knowing that I'm human and I have these thoughts and but everyone else is human and has those thoughts as well so you know if a big quickie's coming down and abusing me and whatever like I know that that actually probably comes from a place of insecurity for him he's probably not all that confident in what he's doing and he's trying to project a bit of aggression to to seem like he's got it all together and I think once you see all those other humans as as I suppose vulnerable and and I suppose flawed people I think it makes it so much easier because you have so much less expectation. And Like I've mentioned, if I go out and nick off first ball and walk off, then I'll happily accept that. I think when you have no expectations, it's not about not caring about succeeding. I certainly care about succeeding. I certainly want to win this World Cup, but I can live with myself if we don't. Yeah. It seems to mirror, actually, some comments that Glenn Maxwell made to us last week where, for him, a major part of this was finding where cricket fit into his life more broadly and not having it be the only thing that defined who he was as a human being mm, absolutely and and I sort of see Maxie I see a little bit of myself in Maxie to be honest I think 
he's probably seen as as sort of so talented and mm. with so much ability and and you sort of look at someone like that playing and you think how can they have self-doubt when you can play the shots that he can play and I won't mention names but I've I've talked to other I suppose you'd call them superstars around the world about their self-doubts and and you sort of realize these guys that are absolutely bulletproof from the outside have the same doubts that that anyone else does and yeah Maxi's obviously had his struggles sort of being in and out of the Aussie team like I have being in and out of the New Zealand team and mm. and I think it's natural to sort of go am I good enough to succeed in international cricket but I think you don't really have to answer that question if you don't really mind mm. so, <laughs> so it's kind of a matter of um, being able to accept that you're not alright mm. rather than having to put across that, that image that you are alright well not not alright just not perfect or just, or just when, think, when you're not you know being able to kind of like there seems like there's a bit of liberation in being able to say I'm not going well when you're not and then, mm. and then that helps you actually get past it more effectively than, than pretending that everything's okay yeah well I, I think for me it's accepting some days I'm going to be junk mm. and that's okay yeah. some days I'm going to go out and shallow catch score 4 off 8 and go none for 50 off 7 and <laughs> What's wrong with that? Sounds you know? very familiar. Whereas I used to, I used to literally stand at the top of my mark, just going, "God, I hope this doesn't go for six. It sounds like, terrifying. Max, you talked about the same thing of the, the yeah. fear of failure, of sort of standing on the edge all the time and worrying about going over. And it sounds like exactly the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, it's all bound by expectation. And look, I think you tell yourself. I mean, positive self-talk is something that I've embraced immensely, and I think. It's one of those fake it till you make it situations. If you have these positive mantras where you you back yourself up and you, I suppose you talk to yourself as if you would talk to one of your mates about how they're going, rather than being so self-critical. And you start to believe those things. You start to puff your chest out, and that's what I feel now playing cricket. I feel like I can take anyone down on my day. I might not. I might. You know, I'll take my chances. It's not an easy thing when you're someone who's prone to getting stuck into yourself. I am one of those. That when you're told not to when you're told no no just be kinder to yourself it's a hard habit to break in terms of looking at at maybe environmental factors which helped you to do that you've talked about the move to Wellington a couple of times now so to what extent did that change of scenery help inform this this shift you needed to make well I owe a lot to to Wellington I think Bruce Edgar Hamish Bennett basically the senior players there were really welcoming and I I, I basically didn't have a technical conversation about cricket the entire six months I spent there I, I think we talked a lot more about how I was enjoying it, what, what my mental processes were, you know, did I feel like I needed to train that day and all that sort of stuff rather than sort of where's my front elbow, how's my back lift, right. all that sort of stuff. And I think for me, look, I don't have the greatest technique batting or bowling. I, I will never have the greatest technique batting or bowling, but that doesn't mean I can't succeed. And, and I think for me it's all about knowing how to get myself in the, the best frame of mind for batting, whether I have a good net or a bad net or get hit in the head three times or get my poles rocked and actually going out the next morning in the game knowing I can succeed. And I think that's what you see a lot with guys who have kids later in their career. Right. They, they somehow, well, they start to not really mind too much if they have a bad net or or whatever because they've got something else that they're focused on. So for me, that something else is is just backing myself and, and going out and believing that I can succeed. James Nation, we could easily talk to you for another hour, but there's a World Cup on and you should probably get on with that. So thanks for joining The Final Word. Cool. Thanks, guys. Jeff, the home and the neighbourhood that you grow up in help shape the person that you become. I can actually contend that this is true because I'm still afraid of bees and um, really don't like the smell of plasticine. 
<laughs> right. So the theory then goes that buying your own home can make you feel different. I suppose it would, partly because you owe somebody a shitload of money. But um, I mean, you've done this recently. Is that is that the case? Do you feel different? I, I do feel different, actually. It's it's a. I feel like a proper grown up after all these years. It's only taken me thirty four and a half years to feel like I'm a contributing member to society, and, and that I am. So, so good o for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So so then. So we've established that. So then the theory runs that you feel more settled and connected to your local community. Is that right? It is actually. I feel quite proud of where I live at, at the moment. Uh, I've, I've I've taken to um, joining the local Facebook groups and the local social media <laughs> um, bits and bobs and attending the local carnivals and all the rest like of it. Finding out, I feel like I'm part of something. Like finding out who's mad about someone else, like who hasn't taken their bins in on time or whatever it is. Somebody's wisteria flowers are overhanging their front fence. So it's really important to A.V. Jennings that when you buy your land or home that you feel like you belong. They don't just divide land into blocks. They design residential communities so that you can connect with others. Things like walking tracks, cycling paths, playgrounds and open spaces. And that sounds pretty good to me. Well, it's particularly important so that in future years when they do some um, lunchtime profile on a cricketer about where they started out, they can say, from humble beginnings or on the open spaces, of wherever it is. <laughs> he used to play with a tennis ball and that's why he's so strong through the offside today. Even now, like a couple of years ago, I went to look, I went to seek out the laneway where Neil Harvey and his brothers grew up playing cricket, that cobblestone street yep. in Fitzroy. I can't remember what it was now, but I remember reading about it in Steve Kinane's book about backyard cricket and how it formed the, the careers of so many Australians that went on to play and, uh, and and it still looks just as it did in the 1930s or whatever it was when Neil Harvey was growing up. So I can, I can agree with that as well. Yeah, it probably does. But the yeah. point here is, like the point here is, yeah, oh, you know, actually, you know, you, you, the, 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 the Ian Chappell interview that we did, Jeff, a few weeks ago when, when Ian Chappell told us and Greg Chappell told me last year something similar around the kitchen table, you had to have sharp reflexes because they threw the bread around and those sorts of things. So there is a bit of a nature-nurture thing with cricket, but this is the nurture side. If you're building these nice green open spaces, then you're more likely to have the opportunity to play a lot of cricket outdoors. Nothing better than that. Can't argue. Right, so go to avjennings.com.au and discover some great places to live. This is The Final Word. Jeff Lemon with you, Adam Collins with me, and thanks once again to James Neesham for taking the time out during a World Cup, which is no small thing for a player with a fair bit on their minds. It's time to jump into the Nerd Pledge side of the podcast. We haven't been here for a while because we had the Maxwell interview. We had a few other things. We've got a backlog of Nerd Pledges to get through. We will do what we can today if we don't quite reach yours. Apologies. This is the game that we play with uh, our supporters on a website called Patreon, which is a way that people can chuck in a little bit of money to help us keep the wheels go going around uh, so there's a subscription kind of service where you can say all right i'm going to give you two bucks an episode and then some people say instead of two i'm going to give you a different number and then you are going to have to work out what the hell this number means in relation to cricket so before we get to the uh, those boutique pledges some normal ones that have come through thank you to Stuart houghton who has signed up thanks to nick felton Thanks to Jonathan Morrow and a, a massive thanks to Ben Mitchell who's come through with a, a very generous pledge. He said, base level is not for me. I like 10 times that number. That's very kind of Ben who was a former, I don't know if you'd say advers- adversary in politics. I think that would probably be stretching it too far. But certainly someone who, um, who I, I did know in my Canberra days. 
We'll leave it at that, I suppose. Um, but he's a very big supporter of the pod and a huge supporter of our work on social media, and that is an incredibly generous contribution. Thank you so much, Ben. It's very kind of you, mate. Uh, let's have a look at some fancy numbers. Matt Boland, first of all, has come through with 274, and there are several options here because that is the test best score for Graham Pollock, Stephen Fleming, and Zahir Abbas, three of the finest batsmen to grace the game, and they each topped out their test work at 274. So I don't know who Matt Boland is a big fan of or who he saw go around, but uh, he might need to clarify that for us himself. Yeah, it's probably not going to be a 2474, is it? So, And it could be a, a tally of 274 in, a, in an innings of a relevant major mm. cricket game. Um, if it wasn't the middle of the World Cup, I'd spend half an hour trying to work it out. But I'm, I'm willing to... I'm willing to go with Graham Pollock. Uh, as you say, we, we sort of learned a bit about Graham last year when we were in South Africa, and uh, and uh, a very interesting man he is. He's got a stand named after him at Port Elizabeth. Yes. Um, and there's not a lot of uh, cricketers from the white South African regime who have honours or things named after them in that country, so he's an exception in that case as well. We're, we're going to race through because we've got quite a few to get to. Sean Barry, 259. The number that jumped out to me immediately with 259 was that's what Michael Clark made in Brisbane against South Africa. Yeah, and I like that because that's an innings that he played alongside Ed Cowan in his 100 for Australia and also the innings of the Quiney Nine. So, all told, it has to be that pup 259. If, if there's any if there's any Quiney Nine adjacent material, then we know that that's what it has to be. <laughs> anything else? Oh, Graham Smith at Lords. Graham Smith at Lords. Yeah, well, that was his, one of his breakout innings as well. So, yeah, look, there's, there's two good options, but it's going to be Michael Clark for us on this occasion. Thank on, you on, so on. much for your contribution, Sean Barry. Sean Barry, uh, Tracing Yarns has come through with 231 and there is no way this could be anything on this podcast but Vinu Mancad's highest test score. Uh, he also made another double hundred. They were both against yeah. New Zealand within the space of a month. So cop that, Kiwis. Yeah, parochial Australia. Oh, sorry, Jimmy Nation podcast. Oh, we'll take it all back. It's kind of a reminder that New Zealand in that era um, were a country which teams didn't pay a lot of respect to. Uh, and that's... Joe Kimber made a good point during the week in relation to Bangladesh that every country starts out, quote, a minnow, end quote. And yeah. that was much as it was for New Zealand and, and even Pakistan, who went through a pretty serious dip before they, they started to come to prominence in, in the 70s. So all the more reason why we should play more cricket against them. <laughs> uh, 2.19, this one from Yvette Hollings, who I mentioned earlier. She's been um, champing at the bit to get this pledge answered for a couple of weeks because we had to put a few off so sorry for making you wait a bit and this is i loved this one because I've, I've i've sorted this one out she did give me a bit of a hint oh, okay. on the messages but 219 is both marcus Triscothic's highest test score but also the total number of runs he conceded while bowling in one day international oh. <laughs> it's included a best of two for seven from eight balls against zimbabwe in manchester in 2000. But the other matches in which he took wickets, he, he took one for in two different games against the West Indies in 2004. One was in a tri-series with New Zealand where England didn't make the final on, on home turf. <laughs> the and, good old days. And one was in the Champions <laughs> yeah, Trophy yeah. final when uh, the West Indies won with a, a massive partnership at eight wickets down between the wicketkeeper Courtney Brown and... You got me covered there. Two thousand and four was my not paying a lot of attention to the cricket days, uh, shall we say? It was it was it was the other I Bishop, I reckon, who wasn't Ian Bishop. It was um it was it was it was it was no, it was Ian Bradshaw, not Ian Bishop, it was Ian B. 
Very good. Ian Bishop was definitely gone. That was the um, that, that game was played on the night of the 2004 AFL Grand Final, so that's why I did not pay any attention to it. Okay. Uh, and also, so in the game, they did win against Zimbabwe when he took two for seven. England chased 170 in 46 overs. That's really, really making sure of it there, weren't they? And Graham Hick made 41 from 95 balls. <laughs> It's a theme of England's chases back then in that era. He almost qualifies as a golden arm. Four wickets, uh, you know. Uh, Four wickets in 123 matches. Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe not, maybe not. Well, golden arm, by definition, you don't need to bowl that often. You just need to be effective when you do. Like Jeff Boycott, we mentioned a, a few weeks ago, bowling with his cap backwards in the 1979 World Cup at Australia. That, you know, and he took wickets uh, in a test match back in the mid-60s against Africa um, to win a test for, for England. So that, that's more what I'm looking at in terms of golden arms. Two, but, two for seven is less a golden arm than a golden staff infection if that's your <laughs> career best but, um, but but you know you could just see where the roots of England's commitment to entertaining one day cricket began those early green shoots <laughs> the <Hick> era <laughs> just thrilled the crowd <laughs> Uh, so thank you, Yvette Hollings, for giving us that excellent one. Uh, Elia Andrews has popped up in my list. I feel like we might have done this. I feel like Elia Andrews might have popped up before, but I can't be quite sure. Anyway, there's 216 on the spreadsheet. That's all I can say. But I'm sure we've done 216, haven't we? Uh, there's 216 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm just trawling through my brain and we have done 216 because that was when we wrongly identified it being Clary Grimmett's Test wicket tally. Yes. So we. And it ended I mean, up I mean being, it is two sixteen. He took two. I know. The, yeah. I know that's how many wicks he took. But there, there is a. It ended up. There is like something else. Niche. It was a niche. It was like a second innings that England made in an Ashes Test in nineteen eighty two. I reckon. That yeah, that, that's right. It, it was an Ashes related um, of personal significance to the author. Yeah, which who, is nothing wrong with have that. Been Bernard Sayer. I think I'm really stretching myself here. But it's two, good, good work on your part. But 216 is Clary Grimmett's tally, and I'm just going to put it forward again. Let's just say it's how many yep. test wickets the great test leg spinner Clary Grimmett took. The great side armour. The, um, the, the fastest, fastest aggregator of wickets that the game has seen. 174 has come through from Simon Trafford, um, which I, most likely is probably going to be a, an innings of 174. And, Yes, yes. Uh, uh, none that immediately spring to mind. Uh, give me a bit of a hint. I know you've got a couple of clues here. Um, well, it's Usman Khawaja's highest test score. Oh, yes, which almost means almost certainly we were there writing about it. Uh, was that, that Pakistan? No, that was wasn't Wellington. Was Wellington was Wellington was 104. That's his best test innings. That was the yeah. day when I've never seen him. I don't think I've seen anyone bat as well as Usman Khawaja at Wellington a couple of years ago. No. Uh, his highest test score, may have that been in Adelaide against Africa? Probably not. It wasn't. Uh, no, that was 145. 145. Same as the, same as the Wellington So one. 174 Khawaja. Uh, oh, God, give me a hand here. Where were we? It's the Gabba. The first one he kicked off with because the um, the Ashes 100 wasn't quite that big and the others were 145s, I remember, because they were the same score with vastly different methods of accumulating them. I remember that night when he came and spoke to us at the media conference how emotional he was, which isn't always the way for Usman Khawaja, but about... Uh, about the fact that he thought he'd never actually get a chance to make 100 for Australia, given how long he'd been in the wilderness and the knee reconstruction and so forth. So, yeah, that does stand out. Hamish Stairs. No, 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 no other 174s? Uh, we're, uh, we're happy with Usman. Well, I, I'm guessing it's Usman, but the other one I thought it could be was it's also Lance Klusner's best score. Oh, give me all, give me all of that. That's when, he was dis- that's when he destroyed Phil Tufnell. Uh, oh, yes. That's when, he, that's when he got real busy after he made it to 100 and, uh, he, and Tuffer's 
cop the brunt of that. So that's the 99-2000 tour, isn't it? Yeah, Port Elizabeth. Yeah. And yeah. against England and Lance Klusner at the peak of his powers. He was. It's not long after he was player of the World Cup. Um, I'm sorry, I, I hate plugging terribly my other podcast, but, but Lance Klusner is on our podcast next week, the 1999 one. So he, he's, uh, but that was the year. That was the year when he was the, the most damaging all-rounder in the world. And oh, I like that too. So it could be Uzi or it could be Zulu. I, I need to tell you that I'm seeing other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I knew the signs were all there, as if I didn't, as if I didn't hear you recording, recording down the phone line <laughs> at seven in the morning. I know, I know what happens. I know what's going on. Now, yes, back to uh, Hamish Stairs. So, thanks to Simon Trafford for one seventy four. Hamish Stairs, who could be a sentence or could be a person, mm-hmm. is uh, has come through with one oh five, and this one. <laughs> The only thing I could think for... Have you, have you got a 105? I have got a 105, actually. I have yeah. got a 105. It's one of my favourite test innings. Really? Yeah, it is. Alex Stewart, not Boxing Day, but the first day of the Boxing Day test, mm. 1998. So it was rained out on Boxing Day. It was the first day my dad and mum let me go to the cricket on my own. Okay. And not a ball was bowled. And I went in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt, which I'd received for Christmas. I was 14 going to the G, rained all day, got back to Dandenong Station at, you know, five o'clock when the play had been called for the day and bawling my eyes out in the car on the way back home on the basis that I'd missed all of Boxing Day. I was gutted. It shows how much I was committed to the cause. I had my scorebook ready to go with me. So I ended up taking it back on day two, three and four. Great test match, of course, where Dean Headley wins it for England on the final day. But on that opening morning when England was stuffed, Alex Stewart goes out and makes 105 and just mm. takes it to the Australians, and I absolutely loved it. That was what did um, what did Kim Hughes make against the West Indies at the G? Was that an even 100? It wasn't many more than 100 on Boxing Day, so uh, it may have been 105 as well. It might be a Boxing Day link on on both fronts there. I've but got, um, I, the other the innings that Ian Chappell said is the greatest he ever saw. Yeah, that, and and Richie Benno was very complimentary of that one as well. I looked up 105s and I also found that there have been 99 scores of 105 in Test cricket. So the next person to make 105 will be the 100th 105. A lot of pressure, real Sachin Tendulkar building up to the, you know, the 100th 105. So um, they'll be in the record books in a way that no one else will ever look at. Yeah, we'll we'll stick onto it for a while. We'll have a 99 problems. Oh, Um, God, that's awful. It's dreadful. I can't even think of a way to link it in. It's too early in the morning. I'm buggered. (laughs) There's, There's one which didn't come through as a number but Nathan Garland signed up with a round number and then regretted it and sent us a message saying <laughs> round number regret that old that old that thing, old thing. You, you can actually edit your round number if you want but um, probably don't edit it to 0.67 because we'd rather you didn't um, but I haven't been able to work out what this 0.67 is uh, I'm batting sure, average I'm sure I should know but it's, it's going to be Chris Martin's batting average no, but it's not it? Chris Martin's batting average is over 2 ah. all the way up over 2 it's like 2.3 or 2.45 okay, so you're looking at okay so, so uh, no one's ever averaged as low as so point six seven. So it could be a none for sixty seven. I mean, that that sounds a bit yeah, a bit a bit military median, doesn't it? That's, uh, that's pretty niche. Point six seven. I, I do think it's going to be a batting average. Why would it not be a batting average? Maybe a series batting average. Yeah, it's going to be a Jit Gurkha or something like that. Although I don't think he made a single run in that series. Come to think of it, or or a, or like a Sean Marsh against India. Or Sean like, Marsh against India. I'm pretty that's sure a, even he managed to average about two because he, okay. he made an eleven in that series. <laughs> right. 
think he made it two, two noughts, two threes, and, and the 11. Let's work it out. To be 0.67 times how many equals a whole number. There you go. That's the challenge. Oh, okay. So if you, if, oh, we need to well, get to a whole number. It's basically 0.67 because it might be 0.669 or something. Right. So, so, it, so something in multiples so of... So three times of something would be two. Two divided by three would be 0.67. So it has to be multiples of three. So it could be someone who made two runs in three innings. Yes, that's right. Or, or four runs in six out. innings or six time. runs in eight innings or something like that. I, look, I think we must be on the right track, but trying to get to the actual bottom of this could, could be a bit, it, bit beyond it, us. It could take a while. Uh, so in that case, 0.67. Give us a hint, Nathan, or if you can figure it out, we'll throw that one back to our listeners. Jace Blackie has come through with 3.79 or 3.79. Um, I don't have a clue as yet. I know it's not a batting score because um, nobody's made uh, anything between, well, the only three seven nine. Lara's 375, there's Hayden's 380 and there's Lara's 400, that's it. Yeah. But 379 sounds like a an inning score or maybe a cap number. Well, it could be. I was going to say, it could easily be an Australian cap number. So while I just pad for time, while I bring up that page on Wikipedia, as I'm so accustomed to doing, which I have bookmarked, 379 is not going to be long ago either. It's going to be in the last 15 or well, so years. Well, Ponting, who's 366. I know that because we did Right. That. So 379 is not a bad one. It's not a bad one at all. And is actually a reference to something that happened the other day. So... David Miller, who plays for South Africa the other day, was batting in the second innings against Bangladesh. And Phil Tufton, who we've also mentioned on the show today, <laughs> identified him as Colin Miller on the radio. <laughs> and that's yes. who the 379th Test player for Australia is, Colin Funky Colin Miller. Colin Funky Miller. What, what a guy. Switched from bowling seam-up in Netherlands club cricket to bowling off-spin and within three years was Australia's Test Player of the Year in their most successful year of Test cricket ever. And, and I'll tell you what, he, he played 18 Test matches. That could have been a lot more. Uh, he, he often got brought in for a Test at the end of the series. Never really got a sustained run in the team was often brought in actually to do both disciplines to be a medium pacer at the start of an innings who could then go and bowl spin at Sydney later on but you think about how, how well he bowled in the final test of that 2001 Bordegavaska trophy series so he got brought in for the third test match and he was really effective there um, imagine the, the parallel universe where Colin Miller is bowling alongside Shane Warne in that series and what may have been possible. And also what he did with the bat from time to time. Uh, that, yeah. That, that uh, partnership he had in the West Indies. With Steve Waugh, yep. You know, the, I remember remember watching him smack around the West Indies in 2000, 2001 at the MCG. He was hooking sixes off his shoulder over fine leg and uh, a thoroughly entertaining player to watch even before he started dyeing his hair blue. He now lives in Miami, I think it is. Jared Whateley, oh, yeah. I think it's Jared Whateley, had him on his show last year in reference to one of the American sports. I reckon it was Jared. Uh, and uh, he now yeah, he lives in the States and um, has a completely different life. Every time I see Colin Miller with the blue hair, I just think like Jim Owen had this bit about, you know, when, when you start going bald, you just shave all your hair off and you go, <laughs> two can play at this game. But, he's like, but then women, if their hair's going grey, they just dye their hair blue. Why is your hair blue, Nan? Oh, it's always been blue. <laughs> some reason, that's all that comes into my head. I know, I apologise the, the bits of mid-90s script that remain in your head. <laughs> the whole bit you did of Shawshank Redemption the other night when we were getting ready for bed was quite... Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm probably not going to do that bit on the no, podcast. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I advise against it. I should warn you, the sudden injury to the brain can cause the jaw to clamp down hard. <laughs> 
you can look that one up on YouTube for yourself. It's probably time to wrap up. You've got a bus. To we do have to wrap up. I've got to, I've got to scoot. Uh, tomorrow, India play South Africa, a game which I need to be at. So, therefore, I need to get down there, and I'll do precisely that. Thanks to Jimmy Nation, by the way. I didn't get a chance to thank him at the back end. Um, he was brilliant. We'll talk to him again soon. And thanks, Kookaburra, for making that possible. Uh, Kookaburra have been so generous with the guests they've given our show over the journey, and, and Jimmy Nation's part of the Kookaburra family. If it ain't Cooker, it ain't Cricket. Yeah, absolutely. So, and thanks to everyone who signed up on Patreon. I'm conscious that we've got a, a shitload that we haven't got through because everyone's been amazing and generous and they keep signing up. We love that. We're very, very grateful for it. And we, I think the issue is that we spend about three minutes on each number because we have so much fun doing it. Yeah. So it takes us a while to get through them. But we will get to yours. I see you, Jane Fry, especially, who's been chatting to us on Twitter. She's, uh, she's got a New Zealand-specific edited number we'll get to, but there are about 20 more in the bank. So bear with us and we'll get through those as quickly as we can on next week's pod. Another mention also to AV Jennings who've got on board to support the show. I mean, we we get such a great amount of support from our Patreon subscribers, from uh, Cookaburra now, from AV Jennings backing in this all the, throughout the World Cup. Uh, it, yeah, we're really humbled by the response to this podcast, uh, both now the, the daily edition and the weekly edition. The weekly edition isn't going out on radio, but the daily one is. It's also yeah. on an Indian... And, <laughs> Basically and, the language um, yeah, doesn't we, allow we, the weekly we can't edition. can't have the weekly one on there. On um, we, we reserve the right to swear once a week if we want to. That's right. It's also appearing on First Post in India and a range of other places. So um, all those search aggregators around the world seem to be spitting out the final word daily podcast at the moment. It's it's an exciting time. Yeah, the the site scrapers are all over it. So exciting time. It'll be exciting to not be doing the daily one as well when we can actually remember to breathe again. But thank you to everyone on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the final word if you want to look at getting involved in that community or sending us a nerd pledge. Uh, Thanks to... Adam for the blind rush this morning and uh, thanks to Jay Mueller for editing everything up at Bad Producer Productions. We will be back with you in a week's time with another weekly edition of The Final Word. Bye. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself.